This season of Well and Good with Art and Matilda is brought to you by Subaru. We love Subarus, and we think they're the perfect car for Kiwis. Indeed they are, Art, because Kiwis are doers, right? And so are Subaru drivers. We're the kind of people who are always pushing to sneak that little bit more out of life. We stay out surfing for that one last wave. We sneak in a trip down to the river for a swim. And we stay at the beach eating our fish and chumps until the very last speck of light is gone. So if you want to do more, do it with Subaru. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Kelda Koto. Kelda, we've got a really, really interesting podcast today with a, an incredible woman by the name of Miriam Lancewood. So, for those of you that haven't heard of Miriam, she essentially lives in the wilderness like this Amazonian goddess with her husband Peter, and they've they've been there for about eight or nine years, haven't they? Yeah. So she's originally from the Netherlands, um, but they've been living in the New Zealand wilderness, living off the land. Um, hunting for food. No devices, not one. No, living by daylight, drinking out of streams, making fire to keep warm and cook their food. Yeah, so we had a really, really insightful chat with her about um, the psychological effects of that and and how, how she found adjusting from modern life to completely paleo kind of caveman life. Yeah, and I guess like the benefits that she's seen in her own health both physically and mentally, Um, yeah, which she kind of shares with us. So it's a really, really interesting podcast, and we hope you enjoy it. Hi, Miriam. Hi. (laughs) Hi. Welcome, and thank you so much for coming out of the wilderness to speak to us. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for having me. Such a pleasure. Yeah, so can you tell us a little bit about how long you've been living in the wild? How long? Um, mm. I guess it started in 2010. I was working as a, at the time as a teacher and I gave up my job and um, we went into the wilderness then. Yeah, so sort of eight, nine years. Wow. So who's we? We. <laughs> yeah. I always speak in terms of we. <laughs> I don't think otherwise. Uh, it's my husband, my husband Peter. And Peter is from New Zealand, and I'm from Holland originally. I've been in New Zealand for over five years. How did you and Peter meet? I met Peter in South India. So I was traveling on my own in India, and there I met Peter. And Peter used to be a university uh, lecturer, and Mm -hmm. he had given up everything and sold his house and all his belongings, and he went with one little backpack to live in India. So when I met him, he was already living there for five or six years. I was just traveling around by myself and uh, I went to a little local restaurant because most foreigners go to foreign restaurants like Western restaurants. Mm. But I didn't. I wanted to eat the local food. And there I met Peter. And that's quite unusual. So I saw him and straight away talked to him. We played a game of chess because I was looking everywhere for somebody to play chess with. And then the rest is is history. Oh, yeah. I moved in the next day. Yeah, I didn't hesitate there. He was telling me the story that he was living on an island in a river and there was a little sanctuary for the wild animals there and he was sort of looking after it for someone else. It sounded very exciting. And I thought, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go there too. <laughs> so I uh, picked my bags and uh, I moved in. And of course, I didn't think I'm going to marry this man and live for years and years to get. No, I thought, well, we'll see where it goes. And I was looking for somebody to walk into the Himalayas with. And he was looking for somebody to 
So that was really good coincidence. And that's what we did. A few months later, we moved up north to the Himalayas and we walked from Dharamsala to Ladakh, which was an epic journey. Yeah, it was fantastic. But uh, that was one of the journeys with it. And then we traveled slowly overland to New Zealand. Cool. Oh, it sounds like the two of you are like kindred spirits. I love it. That's so cool. Yeah, of course, there's a big age difference. I was 22 and he was 52 at the Mm. time. And uh, had that happened in Holland, I would have thought, you know, what would neighbors say? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You can do anything and everything. But you're free and do something long enough and it becomes long. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I felt so free and I thought we're going to travel together. And who cares? Who cares what people think? Mm -hmm. And so that freedom of India brought about these sort of radical decisions of going with someone who is 30 years older. And so you, um, you're you born in Holland, obviously, and you grew up there. Have you always been an adventurous soul, like drawn to the wilderness, or did that come sort of a bit later in life? Did you get sick of normal society, or how, how did it all come about? Uh, I found growing up in a little village in the east of Holland slightly boring. I want to go out, I'm, you know, I climbed trees and all that, and I went out in nature, I went cycling, and so I learned how to make a fire and um, work with ropes and that to make things like chairs and tables. It's good fun. And I guess I was quite adventurous, but I didn't see myself as somebody radical. <laughs> <laughs> um, I did like mountains, though. And Holland is so flat and has no mountains at all. Mm-hmm. Biggest hills a few hundred metres. And every holiday, we used to go to France and climb mountains. Um, and so I guess my upbringing sort of steered me in that direction. And so I'm trying to get an idea of what it is like to live in the wild. Can you like paint us a bit of a picture of what your camp's like and, you know, Just like, like you, a day in the life. Yeah. Like, so cool. are you in a tent? Do you have a hut? Do you move around? Whereabouts in New Zealand are you? Like talk us through it. So um, in the last eight, nine years, we've been doing different things all the time. For instance, a few years ago, we walked the Tiaroa Trail. Well, that is very tough going. How, how my- long did that take you to do the Tararoa Trail? Because I, I think it's amazing. <laughs> I really want to do it. Walking the length of New Zealand. Yeah. Well, other people do then sort of four months or so, four or five months. Some really fast ones in three months. But we had an ocean of time. And so we took 10 months. Oh, why not? <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess yeah. if you don't have a deadline. No. So uh, I was hunting on the way. And if I shot a goat, then we just rested for a week. But yeah, if you go out now and live in the wilderness, then in the beginning, you're very, very excited. Then the next day, you think, what now? <laughs> what are you going to do now? There is yeah. nothing to do. There's no internet. There's no telephone. You know, it seems exceedingly boring. So you have to go through this sort of stage in which the mind calms down completely. And I see that, you know, joining the rhythm of nature. And that is a very hard process. It's about two or three weeks this takes. And in that time, you're feeling bored and you have to sit through it. And uh, funny enough, this is often the time people go on a holiday, right? But anyway, so there's a time of um, adjusting and then, yeah, you become very calm. There is so little choice in wilderness in the sense that we are completely subject to nature. If it rains, we obviously sit under the, under the tarp. If it's sunshine, we make the most of it. We go out. So... What does a normal day look like, you're asking? Um, let's say we have a camp somewhere in the forest, just a little tent that weighs two and a half kilos, very light. And we have a tarp as well to sit on. 
we have another little tarp for the firewood because we're cooking everything on a fire. Ideally, in this place, for maybe uh, two or three months, I go hunting and we've got lots of meat that way, but we also got flour and rice mm -hmm. uh, as a backup because it's really hard to live only off hunting and gathering in New Zealand. Yeah. I bet, especially if you can't store the meat. We don't uh, have that many wild animals, do we? It's not as if it's... I don't know, do we? Do we? Yeah, yeah. Got, the meat is no problem, but uh, what are you going to eat instead of potatoes, instead of rice? Yeah, so protein is plenty. Um, there are very few berries in the high, high alpine, also because to get away from the sand flies. Oh. Where you go, if you're over 1,000 metres, it's very cold, but not yeah. sand flies. Oh, <laughs> I would rather be big cold. So yeah, than, than have those freaking sandwiches. Yeah, totally. So for like vegetables and, and all that sort of stuff, you basically have to forage all of that type of food because you're not really in one place long enough to grow it. Is that what you mean? Well, sometimes we did grow. We stayed in three months in one place in summer and then we did have a little garden. Oh, yeah, cool. but only certain things like kale and silkbean. Yeah, so we're always moving, uh, partly because we like to see the new place because New Zealand is so beautiful while staying in one place. Mm. Uh, but also... Partly because I guess you can't really settle down in a national park. <laughs> to enjoy, you can't really um, claim your own little part and, and make it private. Yeah, so I wake up very early always at sunrise and then I go hunting. And I prefer to look for a small animal. So a hare is very good, a hare, a rabbit, a possum. Um, and they're pests, so thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, indeed. So in New Zealand, people understand the, the value of hunting. Sometimes I get some nasty emails from Europeans who say, wow, you shouldn't kill any animals, but they don't understand the ecological problems here in New Zealand. But anyway, um, yeah, I go hunting. Sometimes I'm lucky. Uh, it also takes a few days to understand the landscape. Mm. So it's difficult to arrive in a place and straight away find an animal. It's much easier to explore a little bit and see where the animals live and what kind of animals are like. Yeah. yeah. And then I come back, hopefully with uh, with a hare. And uh, Peter is the cook, so he used to um, always get the fire going and, and cook the meat. Yeah. Uh, often in the curry. Really nice. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, that, and other days we go for, um, for long walks and explore what's up that mountain, what's up that creek. Uh, let's follow the river down or up. Or, and we come across fantastic rock cliffs and gorges and, mountain lakes on top of the mountains yeah it sounds amazing and so prior to going into the wilderness you were a vegetarian is that right yes a girl vegetarian yeah. uh, my mother never cooked meat yeah and so how how was that sort of transitioning from from that to then hunting your own meat yeah how was it how was it like from a psychological point of view but also from like a health nutritional point of view for you yeah it was difficult everything was so alien um, it is so strange to feel that meat. It's a very strange feeling. On the other hand, I was not used to the supermarket meat. So while when I tasted for the first time wild meat, I thought, okay, this is what it is. Mm. Right? Used to chicken, you might think a possum is not very tasty. Yeah, it's easy that way. But then I feel like chicken doesn't really taste like much, does it? Yeah, so, so what do you mean? it's got a so, sauce on it. Because, yeah. I mean, most people listening to this probably haven't tasted possum and probably many of them haven't tasted hair or wild goat. So do they taste quite different than meat you'd find in the supermarket? Um, yeah, I still don't eat uh, much meat from the supermarket at all. But uh, yeah, compared to that, supermarket meat is very tasteless. 
Mm. Wild meat is much stronger, but I don't mind that taste. It's really nice and it feels so healthy with it. Wild meat gives so much energy. I think it's really good for you. Yeah, because I do think it's important as a meat eater to be able to kill an animal, which I Mm. can't do. I'm one of those people that is a meat eater but can't bear the thought of an animal being killed. But I would like to one day sort of go out hunting and kill something and eat the whole thing just to to kind of get that connection because it's important. Well, yeah, and I think so many of us have a great disconnect between the food that we eat and where it comes from. And we kind of turn a blind eye to the fact that for us to have that cheeseburger, animals would have had to have died, you know, for you to eat that. Mm. Mm. Yes, indeed. But also going out hunting and then shoot something, drag it back to camp, then cook it, it gives such a feeling of accomplishment. Yeah. You're so proud of yourself of doing all this. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I can imagine. Did you notice any differences or any um, anything interesting in terms of like the, from the nutritional side of things and with your body and your health or anything when you started eating meat? Yes, I did, actually. Uh, my hair became one third thicker. So I used to have Whoa. quite thin hair. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And my nails and that became thicker as well. Wow. So, um, oh, yeah. So I wonder if it's all the collagen from the meat. Yeah, because we eat every part of the animal. Also, of course, the heart, liver, and kidneys, those are the most delicious parts. And also the bone marrow and all the sinews and that we boil into the, the broth and the stew. Mm. Mm-hmm. So, okay, and so when you kill an animal, say like a goat or something like that, how long can you eat it for before it goes off? And like, how do you store it and stuff like that? All completely depends on season. In the winter, we once had a chamois and we kept it for a month or so because there were no blood flies. But in the summer, you can only keep it maybe two days. Depends how fat the animals. So we once had a, a pig, and it was really a little fat one. And after the second day, it was off. Oh, wow. you know, so that's disastrous. Yeah. <laughs> so you've really got to like gorge yourself in the yeah. summer months. Yeah. yeah, even if you're full, keep on eating. Yeah. So, then, so how often would you have meat from a kill? Like, is it like you'd have it sort of every week, or? Would you go for periods of time where you won't have any meat, you know, for extended periods of time? Yeah, sometimes you don't have meat for, for days or a whole week. Yeah. And then we have to eat our lentils and, and beans. It just completely depends on how lucky I am sometimes. Mm. I shoot three hairs in one go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you um, started hunting with a bow and arrow. Do you still use a bow and arrow or have you changed to a rifle. gun? Yeah, I've changed to a rifle because... Going with a bow and arrow is so difficult and you often wound the animal because they don't die immediately. And also that this is quite cruel mm. and, you know, then they walk off and I don't know where they're gone. This is terrible. And another thing is that the arrows are very expensive. So I start to see that this is like a very, for rich people only, every arrow is $50 and sometimes I've shot six arrows at one goat, you know, it's got an expensive because I guess probably most people that buy the bows and arrows are, are probably just shooting it like in their backyard or kind of they, into a target. Yeah, they, <laughs> into a target at a, at a corporate retreat. They, yeah, they probably <laughs> aren't using it to kind of survive, are they? So, <laughs> oh, indeed. And then they have to make the decision: how many arrows are you going to take into the bush? But one really great advantage is that I learned how to hunt properly because. The bow and arrow, you have to go really close. You learn how to stalk. And I shot my arrows from, say, 20 or 30 meters. And so this has helped me greatly with hunting with a rifle. Hunting with a rifle is really easy after a bow and arrow. 
Oh, that's yeah. so cool. And um, do you eat insects and things as well? Like, say you got a big fat wetter. Would you eat that? Or a juicy, <laughs> or a juicy hoo-hoo grub. A juicy hoo-hoo I'm grub, imagining, yeah. I'm imagining like The Lion King where Timon and Pumbaa take Simba to their, you know, their little forest and they eat all those grubs and stuff. I can't even remember you know? that scene. Oh, yeah, it's a great scene. Um, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, back to the question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I eat, um, yeah, grasshoppers. Grasshoppers mm. are really good fried. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's okay. Oh, but it, it well, I guess that's sort of... It's a new superfood, isn't it? Because there's, oh, no, that's that's crickets, isn't it's it? crickets, yes. yeah. I mean, no, crickets or grasshoppers, I don't know. Yeah. 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 Cool. yeah, yeah, it's a superfood. They put it on pizzas or whatever. Surely <laughs> 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 you can eat it. Yeah. Oh, that's hilarious. So you mentioned just before, like, there's a transition period. So when you start, you first go into the wild, you think it takes maybe like two or three weeks until you've become sort of, I guess, mentally acclimatized to it. So what happens during that? Like your brain sort of stops kind of overthinking things and you actually fully become relaxed and fully present fully present is that kind of how how you feel yeah i guess so yeah but you don't have much um to say about that process you can't really hurry it on mm. but if you would have a device in the bush and you would look on your cell phone for instance it would certainly take a lot lot longer that's interesting we didn't have any machine of any kind we didn't have any um not even a clock so that helped us Oh, wow. Well, I guess it's sort of like, what's the point of having a clock? Yeah, you're just in, on daylight yeah. daylight yeah. time, right? Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. We ate when we were hungry, but sometimes it's really um, cloudy. So then we don't know when to eat. But, you know, it doesn't matter. We just eat when we're hungry and we sleep when we're tired. So in the summer, we sleep a lot less than winter. In winter time, I think we sleep 12, 13, 14 hours. Wow. wow. I think it's really good to rejuvenate and to recover from everything. Yeah, especially that first winter, I slept so much. And I think that has helped me greatly to recover from our one year working. Yeah. <laughs> it was only one year. <laughs> but I can imagine <laughs> if you've been working for 20 years, you need a lot longer than one winter to recover. Yeah, totally. So, okay, so, so do you reckon you slept longer during that first winter than you do yeah, in I think so, subsequent yeah. winters? Wow, your body needed to really recover. Yeah, so then imagine if it was, as you say, someone that's been working for 40 years or something. Well, yeah, most people who are not getting enough sleep, highly stressed. You can understand why people get chronic fatigue. Yeah, Mm. indeed. Yeah. You know, another interesting thing was that we took one book with us, Lord of the Ring. (laughs) A classic. Read, yeah. (laughs) Peter used to read every night one chapter. And in the beginning, I couldn't really listen. My thought was wandering off all the time and I missed big parts. It took me about a month before I could listen properly and I could follow the story. Isn't it interesting? Because yeah. I thought as a kid I could listen. As a kid I never had problems with that. Yeah, It's so true. It's like our attention spans just get worse and worse and worse yeah. as more things are introduced to our lives and our minds. So yeah. it's really cool. The proof is that as soon as you kind of take it out, your attention span goes back to how it was when you were yeah. young. It's kind of like a forced meditation, I guess, like <laughs> physically removing yourself from society and putting yourself in the wild where you have nothing else to sort of think about really in that first month or whatever. You work through all of these thoughts in your head until you've kind of worked through them all and then you don't have to think about them anymore. But then yeah, can, can you expand your thoughts to 
way bigger things. So do you start thinking about really intense things like well, the, the meaning of life? Or, yeah, because I, yeah. after reading your book, there's a lot of like profound, almost like wisdom from like the way that you've written it and also some stuff from Peter. And I'm like, wow, I want to go live in the bush and become wise like you guys. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people don't have time to, for some contemplation. Mm-hmm. That's what you have in the wilderness indeed. Yeah, a lot of insights came to us. But as you say, in the first months, we think about all the, sh- the silly little things that had happened in the past, you know, even 15 years ago, and all that has to go. And then after some time, your head becomes clearer and you get clarity after some time. What's it like when you go back into civilization? Is it quite full on? Uh, the first day, I'm always very excited. Mm. And I want to talk to everyone because, you know, <laughs> what a great chance to talk to someone. I'm full of energy. But after some days, I get sleep deprived and uh, the light is on in the evening and I can't sleep so much. I'm too excited anyway. (laughs) And I can't sleep at night and I'm always waking up at sunrise anyway. And so I get very, very tired. And then I compensate with eating sugary food to get more energy. So I make the bad food choices. But yeah, this full on, especially with all the noise. Yeah. Um, Then we are always very grateful to be back in the forest. After a week in the city, and it was so glad to be sleeping on the ground again. Do you think that you sometimes need that time in the city to really appreciate being out of civilization in the wilderness, or do you, do you not think yeah, it really matters? But, but both ways, really, because I also appreciate people, and um, we have some great friends in the city, and they're not coming to see us. <laughs> uh, so we have to go and see them. It's great to exchange some good ideas and talk about interesting things. So uh, it's great to have both, but I don't think it's sustainable for me, at least, to live in the city because my health would go down with it, my sense of happiness. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. Like the way that you live is, in my opinion, the way that our bodies are meant to live. Uh, Living by daylight, so sleeping for through the night, like you do, eating meat when it's available, but that can mean going without meat for, you know, a week at a time if you can't get your hands on anything. Yeah, well, that's the thing because we eat way too much meat now just because it's so plentiful. It's everywhere. It's in the supermarkets. It's so easy to get. So we eat it every day for, well, speaking in general terms here, but that's not necessarily the way we should be eating. Yeah, it's no, I also think, indeed, generally, it's the most natural way to live. Just a simple example of squatting. A lot of people can't squat anymore. Mm. They can't squat. Uh, all those ligaments and muscles um, are too tight, and that affects your posture. So what I noticed over the years is my posture is naturally quite good, and I'm naturally um, quite flexible and strong. But if I live in a city, or when I lived in Holland, I used to do sort of yoga and stretching, a lot of exercises in order to keep that natural strength and fitness. Mm. It's because we're so obsessed with comfort, I think, in the modern world. Anything that is remotely uncomfortable, like whether it's a squat or... Your room is slightly colder than the 21 degrees that you yeah you normally have your heat pump program to. Yeah, and so now we, we don't really experience a lot of discomfort, well, in the kind of modern first world anyway. Um, yeah, was that something you had to get used to, is sort of being okay with discomfort and these other kind of environmental stresses? And being cold. Me, not so much, I guess, but Peter, being 30 years older, he had a bit more trouble with it. 
to go from a soft bed to a hard, tiny little mat on the ground. And I think the older you are, the more difficult it is. But for me, well, also, I was trained as a physical education teacher, so I always sort of quite physical and I always like to do some exercises and stretching. So um, it hasn't been too difficult for me. Yeah, cool. Have you ever encountered other people that live in the wilderness? No. <laughs> no, yeah. I didn't I think so. I uh, bean sprouts. <laughs> um, Robert Long and his wife who live down in the Gorge River, and I read the book. But they stay in one place, and the luxury of that is that they can garden you know, make something for themselves. It's mm. nevertheless amazing that they live there. So in terms of like where you can go, can you pretty much just go into the wild anywhere and go and live there? Or do you have to be careful that it's not like someone's land or like national parks or like, how does it work? New Zealand, well, yeah. you can go anywhere. All national parks and all schools land is for the public. Um, it's for everyone, even foreigners like me, although I do have a <laughs> New Zealand passport. <laughs> so yeah, you can go anywhere. And there are no real rules that I know of, but we always make sure we don't leave any trace. You cannot even see that we've been there. Maybe uh, one little spot where the fire has been, and that's mm. it. Yes, you can live in any place, as long as you don't live there for too long. I feel like after this chat, Miriam, because Art is already, he's got this thing about not having lights on at night, and he kind of wants to live, you know, sunset to, to sunrise, isn't yeah. it? Mm. And so now I feel like he's really going to, Start doing this, aren't you? <laughs> well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's funny because, like, I think there are a lot of people who are trying to live, they're trying to live their lives as close to how our ancestors used to live. So, or like, just the a way bit that, closer. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah, small, right. Smaller steps. Yeah, you know? yeah. So, like, you know, trying not to use devices too much and trying to eat more like a, um, a paleo sort of lifestyle or, you know, sleeping by daylight and that sort of stuff. But it's, it's always going to be really difficult when we're still living in society and yeah. doing all that. And I think now that I'm like listening to you talk, I'm thinking, I think I really need to go and, and actually physically put myself in the wild to actually fully experience mm. it. Because mm. otherwise, it's kind of like a constant battle where you're you yeah. know, trying you to do, do it. That. You can mm. spend uh, one season out in the wild. Yeah, try, try take the summer or autumn. But I do think that people in houses also can rewild as the, is the popular term. Um, mm. I think a good start is throwing away all your chairs and sit on the ground and indeed uh, reduce the light, mm. lighting in the evening or wear those blue glasses or orange glasses or something, you know, for yeah. to protect your, your brain. And there's a lot of things you can do. I also recommend to be outside as much as possible. When you have your food, go sit outside. If, mm. Even if it's cold, put on a jacket. Yeah, just get some fresh air and some sun, I think, is huge. Because there can be days where I get to bed at night and I think, I haven't even left the house. Well, partly because I'm eight months pregnant. But, you know, I think, like, I haven't left the house today. I haven't seen the sun. I haven't got any fresh air. I've just kind of got up, made my breakfast, worked from home, had dinner, and gone to bed. And I think, God, mm. you know, that's that's terrible. You should really be getting outside every single day. Eh? Yeah, I think it's very important. Yeah. Mm. I'm going to start rewilding myself. I'm going to throw out our chairs. Well, maybe I won't throw them out. You can have one. Well, why don't you sit on the floor? Yeah, I'll squat. Yeah. Squat. <laughs> the daily recommendation is 30 minutes a day squatting, and most people can't squat at all. Okay. 30 I mean, minutes? Wow. Yeah, yeah right. And this is what we're doing. We sit around the fire. We don't sit around the fire. We squat around the fire mm. because uh, the smoke. The smoke always is always sitting around, right? Yeah. Of course, yeah. I've got tears. So um, we squat also 
you want to be mobile to pick up something or cut a little bit. Mm. Yeah, I'm going to start squatting with my dinner as well. Okay. You know. (laughs) On the kitchen bench. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, while I'm preparing dinner on the stove, I'll I'll, um, squat on the bench. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. We have been using a squatty potty for the last couple of years, haven't we? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's like a little stool you put your feet on when you're doing number twos. Yeah, um, so so <laughs> it's supposed to align everything because there's the Asian cultures that they obviously squat over the toilet and they've got very low rates of bowel cancer and all of this stuff. Hemorrhoids. Pretty much no cases of hemorrhoids that I'm aware of. <laughs> no, no. It's, I mean, hey, look, we laugh, but it's a serious thing. Yeah. I'm all about it. I mean, I think my uh, yeah. my, my stools have been great. Total sense. Mm, yeah, I think it made total sense. And that's what we do in the wilderness, of course, too. Yeah. Mm. We go far away from any river or waterway and, yeah, we dig a hole. We yeah. do our number two there. And uh, that's tree food, you know. It's not pollution. This yeah. is what trees grow on. Yeah. Compost. Yeah, Yeah. as long as you're not close to waterways, Mm. I think that's only a good thing. Here's a quick message from our sponsor, Subaru. Well, it's no secret that both you and I bloody love Subaru. We both drive them. Yep, that's no secret. Well, I drive a Subaru Forester and that one car of the year last year in 2018. It's a medium SUV, and you may ask, what does a medium SUV mean? Well, it means you get all the good stuff of an SUV, of like feeling, you know, quite cool and high up in your big car, but it's a lot easier to to drive around the city, and it's a lot easier to park, which is a big one for me. I mean, I kind of need all the help I can get in that department. Mm, Yes, I'd agree with that. Well, okay, I can understand why that one car of the year. Mm. And it's super safe, it's comfortable, and it's full of tech. Some of that tech, exclusive to Subaru. Well, like what? Well, like the driver recognition system. So, for example, if you get in my car and drive it, which sometimes happens, and you change all the settings, you're putting the chair back, you're turning the mirrors, and then if I get back in the car, it's going to scan me, know who I am, and put all my settings back in place automatically. That is quite cool tech. I know. It's super epic. And what do you drive? Outback. Thoughts? Spar Outback. Love it. It's the people's car, the car of New Zealand. Why is that? Well, it does everything. You can you drive around the city. It's all-wheel drive. You can shoot up the mountain. It's got built-in roof racks, chuck some boards on the roof, head down for a surf, big enough space in the back. You can go on road trips. You can, I've slept in the back. It's that big. Yeah, that is actually impressive because you're quite tall, aren't you? Mm, correct. So go on. Go check out one for yourself. Visit Subaru.co.nz to check out the Subaru range and find an SUV to suit your lifestyle. And unlike Auckland's house prizes, they're totally affordable. Yeah, so with waterways, are you finding that you can pretty much just drink any water that's like running off a mountain or do you have to be careful of some waterways that you get your water from? Yeah, absolutely. It's the purest water in the world. Yeah, it's fantastic water. Of course, we are high up in the mountains. I wouldn't drink out of um, of the Whanganui River. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No. None of the rivers that come through cities or where storage has gone into, you know. Yeah. No, we are high up in the mountains and the water is just fantastic. And Peter always say, make sure you drink out of every little stream because every one of them have different elements in them. And your body might just need that. You know, one little hand we drink out of every stream. Oh, that's so cool. I love that. So I want to know about how you light fires because I'm imagining like I've seen Survivor and on those days when it's really raining and... Oh, they do struggle. And they're trying to light those fires. I'm thinking like, you know, it's middle of winter. What's Miriam doing? How is she lighting a fire with wet wood? Like, how is this happening? Yeah, so it's all in the preparation. Yeah. Okay. So if you have nothing, 
to a lot of fireworks, you've been very dumb because you haven't <laughs> <been> yourself. <laughs> so fire is always on our mind. So if we see big rain coming, Peter always gets a dry firewood. And um, you can start with finding, it's a piece of bark, for instance, that you can cut off with your knife. If it's the forest is really wet, you look for a fallen down tree. And on the bottom of that is some bark that's never got wet. So you collect that with your knife. Some leaves in that have resins in them. And so they burn even when it's uh, wet. And uh, we light the fire just with matches because the rest is so difficult already. To light a fire, even with matches, can take an hour if the conditions are damp. And I guess fire is so important for you guys in winter because you could die, essentially, if you're not warm enough, right? So, yeah. It's amazing how warm a big fire is. Mm. Amazing how much warmth it gives. Because a lot of people say, wow, how miserable in winter being out there. And it is without a fire. But, yes, for every cup of tea that we make, we have to light the fire. So uh, you're constantly, constantly busy. And that's why my hair always smells of smoke and our clothes and everything. Mm. I like that smell, though. It's a nice earthy smell, isn't it? Yeah. But not everybody likes that smell. Yeah. <laughs> and sometimes I have to go hitchhiking to a town to get more supplies. And then I always open the window and say, sorry about the smoke. Not that I smell it, mm. but they might not like it. Ah. Of course. Have you had any periods of time where you have gone without food for like an extended period of time? Maybe you haven't been able to light the fire or I don't know, something has happened and you haven't been able to eat? No food at all. No, there is always something to eat. Mm. Uh, And we're always careful to to organise ourselves. So always make sure we have more flour than we actually need. Some people who walk the Tiaroa Trail, the long 3,000-kilometre walkway through New Zealand, they cut it so fine, they plan their days and then sometimes they don't have food for the last day until they get the time. I think that this is very dangerous. And I think the most of the danger happens in New Zealand when people are pressed for time. Trampers go out on the weekend, they have to be back on Monday morning. So they cross that last river, don't they, to get to the car, and then they drown. So we never take those risks. If the um, river is high, we just camp yeah. and uh, wait. And if we sit all day in the tent, we burn very few calories. So don't need to eat so much so um yeah in that way we keep it very safe mm. have you like experimented with any like plant medicines or have you do you use plants in any way for any ailments or or anything like that no i guess we're eating preventative all yeah. of those berries that we find they have some medicinal value and that prevents ailments i guess mm. but we never got sick we only got sick when we go to town and get a, uh, a cold and a flu from other people. <laughs> yeah, interesting. So uh, often we have a cold there and then we go back in the, back in the wilderness and we are um, healthy again. Yeah. And do you have like a, a plan in place, say, if there was like a medical emergency or you or Peter broke a bone or something, what would you do in that kind of scenario? Because you don't have phones or anything. No, indeed. So we have uh, very strong painkillers. That is only that you normally only get in the hospital. And um, if something happens, then that person gets the painkillers and the other person has to walk out. That's our plan. Good plan. <laughs> that makes sense. Never... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, touch wood. I just touch wood for you. So that's quite risky. We are really very careful and we're very slow compared to other people. Sometimes we see uh, trampers and they go literally twice as fast. Also because they have big boots and we do everything in sandals. 
And with sandals, you have to be quite careful, otherwise you hurt your ankle or your toe. Or, and uh, so that's another um, prevention of accidents. Mm. Are there any things that you've kind of learnt about yourself or you've just learnt about life from living in the wild that you wish you'd known before when you were back living in normal society? Um, well, when you live in the wilderness and you're subject to the weather and you get um, a massive thunderstorm overhead, that is so scary and you're really wondering if you're going to survive it. Or you go over a cliff or something, you have to sort of mountain climb and so scary and you think you're going to die and then you survive it, right? Those times of fear are very short-lived and the moment after, you know, it's all good again. But sometimes what I had in living in Holland and most people experience the same is anxiety, that being nervous for, say, exams or for, for a job or whatever. And this anxiety goes on and on and on. And what has happened to me by living in the wilderness is I don't have those psychological fears so much. Last year, I had to speak in a big event in Melbourne, in Australia, for 1,400 people. And I thought, you know, this is not a flooded river. This is not a thunderstorm. You know, I'm not going to die. There's no danger here. So I don't need to be afraid. And that is so, so great to be free of those psychological fears. And I wish I had known that when I was living in Holland. Of course, this comes with living with those dangers, I guess. I really love that. It just kind of puts it into perspective, I guess, doesn't it? Yeah. Mm. So the book that you've written, which I've just had a good wee read through. Woman in the Wilderness. Woman in the Wilderness. I don't think we've actually said the title yet. Yeah. Um, so why did you want to write that? Well, I didn't want to write it at all. Uh, I never <laughs> thought of writing any book. <laughs> um, a publisher asked me. So it started that we were staying with a friend and just for something to do. I wrote down one day of our life. And it was midwinter. I got in the tent and um, shot a hair and we cooked it and we went for a little walk. You know, that's all. And that was published in Mind Food, the magazine Mind Food. And uh, luckily the publisher had read this. And she said, uh, Miriam, she contacted me, would you like to write a book? I thought, <laughs> I've only written two pages. Uh, this is something to write a whole book. I said, okay, I'll, I'll try. I'll write one chapter and see how you like it. And she says, yeah, we like it very much. And uh, would you like to write the rest of it? And I thought, well, I've good job. And then Peter said, you'll be mad if you don't take this chance because um, people write books and they, they send it, send a manuscript to so many publishers and no one wants to take it. So if a publisher asks you, you have to take the chance. So uh, I did. And I'm very amazed that it went so well. It's now been translated into Dutch, German, French, and Chinese. Oh, congratulations. That's amazing. That's yeah, really it's, cool. a, it's a really cool book. It's, yeah, it's very insightful with some um, cool photos of you guys out in the wilderness in the middle of winter. I love that photo of your breath in the cold. That really kind of... Yeah, big little breath. Yeah, yeah sometimes yeah. it's really cold. Yeah. But, so did they... yeah, it's been great fun to um, to write, and also it's been launched me into a different world in a way because they wanted me to do a speaking tour and all that in Holland, and they treat me like some sort of celebrity, and uh, it's absurd. The contrast is amazing. And then after that week, I went back into the wild. Yeah, wow, that that's is a, a huge contrast. That's a real change, isn't it? Yeah. How cool though that you can jump in and out of these two completely different lives you can have the best of both worlds should you wish to that's that's pretty yeah, unique yeah, i like the extreme you know in holland i stayed in a five-star hotel mm. at 
um, driven around the limousines and then go back into our tent in the rain. You know, both are so extreme. And that, I think that extreme way of living, that makes me feel alive. Mm. When you come back into society, do you just mm. love a hot shower or a hot bath? Is that just the most delicious thing? Or does it just kind of lose its novelty? Yeah, yeah. No, I love the hot shower. Yeah. <laughs> it's great. But it amazes me how quickly you get used to it again. And the second one is not as great as the first one. And the third one is almost normal again. Yeah. And then then it slowly just becomes a part of your life. Isn't that interesting? The human body adapts pretty quickly, doesn't it? The human mind. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. True. It gets excited and then it just goes, oh, I'm over that now. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, So it takes about two weeks to slow down, but about two days to speed up. Isn't that strange? That's yeah, interesting. Yeah, you mentioned it right at the start. We talked about two weeks to slow down, and that's when people go on holiday. So, like, they holiday for two weeks, say, and then at the end of that two weeks, they're just sort of relaxing and slowing down, and then they go straight back to work. So they don't actually. Yeah, slow and two days they're back to where they were. Yeah, yeah, they need more time, but we don't have time these days. Eh? Mm. People are too busy and fully planned everything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if someone came to you and they were like, "Hey, Miriam, I want to rewild myself," what sort of things would you tell them that they could do in the next week what could they do we've got the chairs we've got chairs we've got get rid of chairs and start squatting more what else yeah squat squatting well at the moment we're staying with a friend and he's got a firebox so um we're cooking on a fire (laughs) that saves gas but you know a firebox is quite low so i'm squatting in front of that firebox to make sure that the food doesn't burn (laughs) so uh yeah if you have a firebox cook on a fire why not yeah makes sense as well yeah, go to bed when it's dark and get up when it's light. And I think I heard also somewhere that it's very good to eat with the circadian rhythm, to eat in daylight hours as well and not eat after it's dark. Yeah, what else? Go and sit outside indeed and have your food outside. I'm, I'm keen to bring that in. Going eating outside? Yeah. I'm going to hold you to that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, put on a jacket and, uh, yeah, and, and see what you see by having your meal. The birds are coming into the garden and... Everything is quite interesting, especially now in New Zealand in the spring. It's fantastic what's coming out, all the mimosa flowers, and it's amazing. Those lambs getting born. Yeah. Um, well, we've just got one final question for you, Miriam. If you could eat three foods and only three foods for the rest of your life, what would you eat? Um, is fruit one food? or um, No, you've got to be specific. Got to be oh, okay. specific well, I love food. apples. Okay. Apples. It's not so good for my teeth, but I love apples. I could live on that. And then I take one animal. My favorite is the hare oh. because it's very lean meat and steaks is just fantastic. Fry up and the liver and kidneys are delicious. Um, I think that's really healthy. And then I eat an enormous amount of seeds like sesame seeds and sunflower seeds. Yeah, I love that. Uh, but of course, I'm always picking um, edible plants like all the herbs and that. So I, I eat that with the seeds. I guess it's too many now. <laughs> no, that hey, well, that's a pretty good combo. It could be like a scroggin sort of thing for the food. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that sounds a like a good combo. Seed healthy. Yeah, really healthy. Mm. You are going to live for a long time. Yeah, I hope so. Oh, but one more thing I'd like to add for people who like to eat healthy but don't want to spend a fortune is just make chapatis. Just buy whole flour in the supermarket. Yeah, like flatbread, like a uh-huh. tortilla, like. Like a wrap. Mm-hmm. Just buy wholemeal flour in the supermarket. It's about uh, $1.70 or so. <laughs> Take one cup, add a little bit of water, and then a pinch of salt, and uh, sort of knead it into a ball, and then um, roll it up. 
and then just roast that or fry that in the uh, in the fry pan. And that's fantastic food. There's no additives. This is what we lived on, on Tiaroa. Just flour and then we buy peanut butter and eat it with peanut butter. Ooh, it's yum. delicious. Every mm. time it's delicious. Yeah, with a tin of sardines or something. Yeah, or chuck some hair in there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, Miriam, thank you so much for chatting with us. Um, so interesting. Yeah, really, really interesting. And we understand you're writing a new book at the moment as well. Yes, my publisher is trying to convince me to write a sequel. Because after the book came out, Peter and I went to Europe and we walked another 2,000 kilometers in West Europe and East Europe and Turkey. And uh, many, many things happened. And I will write it all down in the second book. Oh, I can't wait to read it. Awesome. (laughs) (laughs) And so normally at the end of these podcasts, we ask our guests how people can contact them and follow them. But I guess the only way to contact you would be to walk into the wild and and physically track you down. (laughs) Yeah, make some smoke signal. <laughs> uh, no, I do have a website, uh, okay. miriamlanswood.com, and uh, you can contact me really easy. Just uh, click on contact and that message comes straight to my inbox. And every time I'm in town, I'll just check the internet and my emails. Awesome. And that's the way um, I receive many, many emails. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> awesome. Oh, thanks yep. so much, Miriam. It was awesome to talk to you. Well, thank you so much for having me. All right. See ya. Thanks for listening. Thank you indeed. This podcast is brought to you by Raw Collective. And for any updates on our podcast or any of the other podcasts under Raw, head to rawcollective.co or you can follow them on Instagram at raw underscore collective.co. But wait, before you go, please subscribe to our podcast and also rate it and review it. Leave a nice little message. Leave a smiley face, maybe an emoji. Or tell your friends. It's super easy. It takes two seconds and it would mean so much to us. Bye. Bye.